Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Cardio Nerds. It's Dan Ambinder here, and we are ecstatic about bringing this seventh prevention episode to your feeds. Previously on the Cardio Nerds Prevention Series, we've covered a great case discussion in true Cardio Nerd style, had an inspiring patient perspective by Kanaka Min, heard the ABCs of cardiovascular prevention with Dr. Roger Blumenthal, explored women's cardiovascular prevention with Dr. Leslie Cho, got down and greasy with lipids with Drs. Anne-Marie Navarre and Nishant Shah, and got crunchy and calcified with Dr. Michael Blaha, coronary artery calcium aficionado and expert. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Aaron Mikos, who helps demystify the stories of aspirin, vitamin D, calcium, and dietary fish supplementation. While we had Dr. Mikos on the line, we just had to talk to her about her role as a mentor and found three amazing mentees that she is actively working with to join our conversation. Stay tuned. Hello, cardio nerds. I am so excited to introduce Dr. Erin Mikos. Dr. Mikos is an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine with joint appointment in the Department of Epidemiology at the Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's the director of women's cardiovascular health and the associate director of preventive cardiology with the Johns Hopkins Chicaroni Center for the Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease. Dr. Mikos completed medical school at Northwestern University in Chicago and then completed both her internal medicine residency and cardiology fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. She also completed her MHS in cardiovascular epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She has authored or co-authored over 300 manuscripts in peer-reviewed journals and is an internationally known leader in preventive cardiology and women's health. In addition to being a wonderful clinician and researcher, Dr. Mikos is also very involved in teaching and mentoring, serving as training director for three AHA strategic focus research networks, in addition to being the 2019 recipient of the David Levine Mentoring Award presented by the Johns Hopkins Department of Medicine. To highlight this amazing commitment to mentoring, we are excited to be joined later in the interview by three of her mentees, Dr. Andi Shahu, Dr. Rick Ferraro, both Hopkins residents, as well as future Dr. Sarah Jang, Hopkins medical student. So thank you all for being here. This is going to be an amazing discussion. It gives me great pride and honor to be on your show. As you know, I'm at the same institution here at Johns Hopkins with many of your founding cardio nerds like Dan and Corinne and Heather. And of course, I'm trained here too. And so to watch before my eyes, you all build this amazing educational platform and have it be such an international success. Literally, I have tears of pride for all of you. And I'm most proud of your dedicated efforts for diversity and inclusion, how you partnered with Women as One. Back in my own cardiology fellowship days, I was the only woman cardiology fellow in my fellowship class. And now to watch you all cardiology fellows and medicine residents really lead the charge in the diversity and inclusion initiative. I'm just beaming with pride and so happy to be with you today. Thank you so much, Dr. Mikos. And really, I cannot reiterate enough how excited we are to finally have you on our show. And we're really excited to dive in and get your input on some cases from our Cardio Nerds Prevention Clinic. 
So with that, I'd like to start with our first case. Our first patient is Mr. Albert Almond. He's a 55-year-old African-American gentleman with a history of hypertension, obesity, a BMI of 35, and a family history of MI in his father at the age of 50. His blood pressure today is 135 over 85, total cholesterol 130, calculated LDL 90, and his 10-year ASCVD risk by PCE is 10%. He has been taking aspirin for the past 10 years, but heard on the news recently that there is an increased risk of bleeding, and he asks if he should continue. Dr. Mikos, would you recommend that Mr. Almond continue taking aspirin? How has the role of aspirin evolved over the past several decades, and how has this been translated into the most recent iteration of the prevention guidelines? Oh, thank you for this great case. It's so common in clinical practice. So Mr. Allman is in this intermediate risk group. You know, he has a 10-year risk score of of 10%. And I I will point out, though, that he also has a family history of premature myocardial infarction in his father. And that's not one of the factors that are included in the pooled cohort equations. But it is something that our 2019 ACC AHA Preventive Guidelines considers a a risk-enhancing factor that would put him into a higher risk category. So as you might be aware, the older 1997 and the 2002 American Heart Association guidelines, as well as the 2016 U.S. Preventative Service Task Force guidelines, generally recommended aspirin for those over a 10-year risk score of of 10%, like Mr. Allman. But the problem with that, the challenges of aspirin in primary prevention is that the absolute risk of vascular events are much lower than in secondary prevention, but complication rates, bleeding rates are comparable. And we've had three recent large-scale primary prevention trials suggesting aspirin may do more harm than good. And again, this is compared to prior decades in modern preventive practice where we have much less smoking, we're doing better with increased utilization of statins and have better blood pressure control. So you know I was a co-author for the 2019 ACC AHA Primary Prevention Guidelines. And when we reviewed the evidence, we really couldn't find any specific 10-year risk threshold cut points or the benefits clearly exceeded the risk in all individuals. Some of the challenges are in that recent cohort studies and trials estimated 10-year risk has generally exceeded the actual observed risk in follow-up. And furthermore, as ASCD risk goes up, so does bleeding risk. They kind of track together. And so our committee really felt there was insufficient evidence to recommend a specific PCE risk threshold for decisions about aspirin. And we recommended that clinicians really consider the totality of evidence for an individual's person risk, considering those risk-enhancing factors like Mr. Allman has, such as having a strong family history of premature MI or perhaps smoking or if some evidence is some clinical atherosclerosis. So in the most recent guidelines, aspirin got a bit of a downplay, as you alluded to. It was a 2B indication, which means generally no for most healthy adults, but yes, selectively. We also gave a class three recommendation not to use aspirin routinely for those over the age of 70 based on the ESPRI trial and a class three don't use in, in any primary prevention patient who's at increased risk of bleeding. 
But there are still maybe select patients aged 40 to 70 who are high enough risk that may benefit from aspirin if they're at low bleeding risk. And again, one of my favorite quotes was Dr. Paul Ritker in his editorial in New England Journal of Medicine 2018. And what he wrote was, beyond diet, maintenance, exercise, and smoking cessation, perhaps the best strategy for the use of aspirin and primer prevention of cardiovascular disease may simply be to prescribe a statin instead. So, you know, going back to Mr. Allman, I didn't see that he was on a statin. I want to gauge him and share decision-making. I want to understand his own values and preferences. He might put extra weight on the concern about his family history, and I'd really review his bleeding risk. But in him, I may actually consider a coronary calcium score. His LDL is 90, and he has a family history. And I know on a prior podcast, you talked to our colleague, Dr. Michael Blaha, about the use of coronary artery calcium score to guide decisions, refine risk a little bit better, and guide risk-based decisions when risk is uncertain. This was predominantly about decisions about statin initiation. But I also can find it be helpful for the aspirin discussion as well. And so I would actually talk to him. And if there was some uncertainty about his risk, he might be a good candidate for coronary calcium score because of his family history. And I would recommend a statin for any non-zero calcium score. Whereas for aspirin, I would consider it if he had an elevated score, a score above 100. And that's sort of based on modeling data from the observational multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. So that's how I would approach it with him, a risk discussion. And of course, with him, it's more complicated because he's already on aspirin. So decisions about discontinuation are certainly different than decisions about initiation. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Because for that. And Mr. Ahmed is just very appreciative for your advice. And we will have some shared decision-making with him with regards to whether or not he will stay or come off of his aspirin. And just going back to what you said earlier about Carter Nerds, I just have to take this opportunity to thank you so much for really opening our eyes about how we can take cardiovascular education from the bedside to our own colleagues and then basically use opportunities such as social media outlets like Twitter to really connect with the entire world. And that's definitely something that I've talked about a lot on the show of your mentorship. Basically, you opened up a whole world to me and to us, Green and myself and everybody else on the Cardio Nerds. And so we are very much appreciative. And aspirin, like coming up as a medical student, like it was almost a vitamin, like it's almost like everybody should be on it. And as we are learning and, and get more nuanced in it, we realize there's no free lunch and every agent we introduce has a risk. And so patient selection is key. And so that's basically the gist of what I understood from your answer for the last question. Sometimes patient selection requires further testing, and sometimes it just requires us to be thoughtful about our patient's pre-existing risk factors. And speaking of medications and vitamins, we have another patient for you. This patient is Patricia Pican, but sometimes she likes to go by Pican when she likes <laughs> to sound fancy. <laughs> But she is a 48-year-old African-American female with a history of hypothyroidism and obesity. Her BMI is 30. She recently had a yearly physical exam where labs were drawn, and she was informed by her primary care doctor that her 25-hydroxyvitamin D level came back at 24 nanograms per milliliter. Her best friend from college recently had a heart attack, and Ms. Pecan is keen on doing everything she can to reduce her risk of cardiovascular disease. During an online search, she came across several articles saying that vitamin D can prevent future heart attacks and maybe COVID. And so she's eager to get your opinion on vitamin D. 
Dr. Beekus. Thank you. You know, I spent more than a decade evaluating blood levels of 25-hydroxy-D level with cardiovascular risk using big cohort data such as the ERIC study and the MESA study. And there's just overwhelming number of observational data, including a lot of my own work that's linked low blood levels of 25-hydroxy-D with increased risk of a whole host of cardiovascular outcomes. So low blood levels of vitamin D is associated with increased risk of MI and stroke and heart failure and diabetes and atrial fibrillation and you name it. It's a marker of a lot of bad outcomes. But the the problem is that associations do not mean causations necessarily, and there is a lot of potential for confounding. And these findings weren't confirmed initially in Mendelian randomization studies. And things like, for example, low vitamin D levels are strongly linked with obesity because vitamin D is fat-soluble, so adipose tissue sequester vitamin D. And furthermore, low 25-hydroxy-D levels may be due to limited physical outdoor activity, which is, again, associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes. So it's clearly a marker of a poor health state. But the question that had come up for many years is that if you treat low vitamin D with vitamin D supplements, can you actually prevent these adverse outcomes? But now I think we finally have definitive data showing that the evidence from randomized clinical trials has been essentially null, that treatment with vitamin D doesn't prevent cardiovascular disease. We initially saw this in the Women's Health Initiative many years ago, but that study was questioned because they just used a low dose of vitamin D, only 400 international units in that trial. And then there was the VITA study from New Zealand, a randomized clinical trial, over 5,000 individuals who had gotten this monthly dose of 1,000 IUs a month versus placebo. And again, there was no benefit in, in cardiovascular event reduction over three years. And although they didn't recruit specifically a vitamin D deficient population, about 25% of the participants had levels less than 20, and there's still no signal benefit for them. But then that study was a little questioned because we don't usually use these high dose monthly supplementation So I think the most definitive trial was the VITAL trial, this U.S.-based trial over nearly 26,000 participants, over 5,000 Black race who were free of cardiovascular disease at baseline, and they were randomized to 2,000 IUs of vitamin D versus placebo. So this was generally much higher than some of the older trials. And after a follow-up of five years, there was no reduction at all in major adverse cardiovascular events for the primary outcome, nor for any of the individual cardiovascular outcomes, MI, stroke, or cardiovascular death. Findings were similar by race. And again, while they didn't specifically recruit a deficient population in the subgroup that did have levels less than 20 nanograms per milliliter, or even below the median, which was 31 nanograms per milliliter, there was still no cardiovascular benefit. There was no harm seen. There was no adverse events. And another trial after that, the D2D research group looking at diabetes also didn't find a benefit in a randomized clinical trial of 4,000 IUs of vitamin D for uh, reduction in diabetes. So essentially, it's all null. And I think putting this all together is that these really strong associations we saw before, you know, were just that associations. There was a lot of residual confounding. And I think the same thing may be the case for COVID. We know that low vitamin D levels are associated with obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. It's a good marker of a poor health state. But 
these same poor health factors are associated with severe COVID. So it's not surprising that hospitalized individuals with severe COVID have low blood levels of vitamin D. But again, that association doesn't mean a causal relationship. And we have no data to date that treating with vitamin D supplements can actually prevent severe COVID. You need a randomized clinical trial for that. And those are still ongoing. So getting back to Ms. Pecan, who had levels of 24, so I want to point out that the Institute of Medicine, which is now the National Academy of Medicine, generally recommends that adults 19 to 70 years of age take in 600 IUs of vitamin D and above age 70, 800 IUs. And the Institute of Medicine says that levels above 20 nanograms per milliliter are generally adequate for bone health and overall health for the vast majority of Americans. So she would have adequate levels by the Institute of Medicine criteria. They define deficiency as levels less than 12. Now, I will point out there is some controversy with this, that the Endocrine Society has generally considered levels above 30 optimal, and that's why she might have been told that she's low at 24. But again, we don't have any data to date that suggests supplementing her from 24 to above 30 would actually reduce her risk of cardiovascular disease or COVID. So in her, I would recommend that she follow a healthy lifestyle, you know, get regular physical activity and weight maintenance. And certainly I would treat her if her levels were less than 12 or if she was at risk for bone disease and osteopenia, osteoporosis. But a level of 24 is within normal limits. And I would not recommend supplementation, nor do I think there's any evidence that giving her supplements of vitamin D would improve her cardiovascular health. Thank you so much, Dr. Mikos. Just a side question here, taking it back to the bedside or actually a clinic visit where you have all this evidence and you have all of the guidelines that you've thought about very hard before you've seen the patient. But some patients come with preconceived notions about vitamins and about aspirin because you're also such a phenomenal master clinician beyond for your research. And we've got to witness that. What is your approach to talk to patients about vitamins and supplements, especially if they have preconceived notions? Yeah, again, it's part of shared decision making. And I certainly try to make sure they're on the appropriate preventative therapies that we know reduce risk. In in terms of vitamin D, at least from the vital studies, intake of 2000 IUs a day seem to be relatively safe. And so, you know, if they have a strong opinion about taking it, I'm not going to discourage it. Although there is some concern from other studies that higher levels may increase risk with hypercalcemia. So this is different for vitamin D than maybe some other supplements. You've hinted, you might ask me about calcium supplements. And so that's a little bit different story because that data suggests a potential harm. So certainly if they're taking high dose antioxidants or or types of supplements where there's actually a signal for harm, then I may try to persuade them a little bit more by sharing that evidence to caution them to use it. Again, if there is no harm, I will just support that there's no evidence of benefit and really try to emphasize the importance of healthy lifestyle. I think patients want to take things over the counter dietary supplements because they think that they're doing something natural. But just because something is found as a dietary supplement doesn't necessarily mean just because you can get it over the counter doesn't mean that it's necessarily safe or or beneficial. And and there can actually be some harm with some of these supplements. And if they really want to do things that are natural, I try to capitalize on that and really push hard on lifestyle changes and eating healthy diet and getting regular physical activity because that's as natural as you can get. 
That's really wonderful, Dr. Mikos. And with that, I'd love to segue into our next case, Mrs. Carly Cashew. She's a 65-year-old female with no significant medical history. She goes for nightly walks with her husband, plays tennis weekly, and keeps a healthy, balanced diet. She is convinced that the reason she has remained healthy is because of her daily supplements, very similar to the patients you just alluded to. And these supplements include calcium. She wants to continue to be proactive about her health and comes to the clinic to see if there is anything else she should be doing to minimize her risk of heart disease. How do you counsel patients about calcium supplementation? And what if the studies, including your own, shown about the risk of calcium supplementation and cardiovascular disease events? Yeah, so great question. A little over the 40% of the U.S. population takes a calcium supplement, including over 65% of women over the age of 70. So it's very common. Calcium is important to get adequate dietary intake and the recommended daily intake allowance for adults aged 19 to 50 and for men 50 to 70 would be 1,000 milligrams a day. And we recommend 1,200 milligrams a day intake for women aged 51 to 70 and all adults over the age of 70. But given that some, although not all, but some observational and randomized clinical trials of calcium supplementation have suggested for potential for cardiovascular harm, which I can review, my recommendation that generally calcium supplementation should be used cautiously and try to strive for those recommended intake of calcium predominantly through food sources. So, you know, this first came to light in 2008. The Auckland Calcium Study was a randomized clinical trial. Again, it was for bone health, but that first raised concerns that calcium supplements actually increased vascular risk. And since that time, there's been a number of studies, observational studies like Epic Heidelberg and other ones that have found that calcium supplement use has associated with increased risk of cardiovascular events than non-calcium supplement users, particularly for those who have calcium intakes from supplements that exceeded 1,400 milligrams per day. And in one of my studies from the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, which was, again, an observational study, you know, we found that calcium supplement use was associated with a 22% increased risk of having an incident coronary artery calcium score greater than zero on a, a follow-up CT scan among those that were initially zero. And this was after we took into account all the traditional risk factors as well as energy consumption. In contrast, a higher intake of calcium from food sources was not associated with cardiovascular risk in these observational studies or in the MESA study. Now, getting into trial data, because certainly we talked about with vitamin D about all the confounding that can happen in observational data. There's actually been some harm suggested in trial data too. Again, the Auckland Health Study was a trial. The original Women's Health Initiative trial didn't find an excess risk with calcium plus vitamin D, but there was a sub-analysis of WHI that excluded participants taking personal supplement use, and they did see a 24% increased risk of myocardial infarction in that subgroup. I worked on a meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials. The first author was Dr. Safi Khan. It was published in 2019 in Annals of Internal Medicine. And in our meta-analysis of trials, we found an increased risk of stroke with calcium plus vitamin D supplements. And then there was also some meta-analysis after this that pooled all these trial data together. And again, there was a signal for increased harm. It was a greater risk in men than women and greater risk when it was exceeded more than 1,000 milligrams a day 
or when the calcium supplements were not taken with vitamin D. In light of this harm, again, like all the other patients, I would have a shared risk discussion with the patient. You didn't mention Ms. Cashew having any bone disease or osteopenia. She's actually active and walking and exercising every night, and she may be at a lower risk for bone health. So I would really emphasize trying to get adequate calcium through an adequate diet. And vitamin D, there's actually a lot of food sources, including non-dairy food sources that can contain calcium such as leafy green vegetables and beans and almonds. And so I would try to encourage that. I would have her do a food diary and try to see what her average intake is. And then if she's truly not able to reach her recommended amount, I would consider using calcium supplementation modestly, small doses, less than 500 milligrams to kind of make up any gap. So why is there this discrepancy? Why is dietary calcium been associated with a beneficial effect where calcium supplements have this suggestion for harm? Well, you know, I think it's this bolus effect that when you take a, a large dose of a supplement, particularly not with food or not with vitamin D, you can get this transient hypercalcemia. And even if calcium levels go back down to normal, you have this transient rise after intake. And that can potentially trigger the coagulation cascade and lead to thrombotic events or elevated circulating calcium levels can lead to, you know, vascular deposition of calcium, like in our study with the increased risk of coronary artery calcium. I would counsel her, again, patients generally are doing this because they care about their health. They want to be healthy. They want to do everything right. And so I would really encourage her to continue what she's doing with her healthy balanced diet and track her dietary calcium intake and then caution her about avoiding excess supplementation if she's really truly reaching her intake because no data has suggested that more is better. Once you get above 1200 milligrams a day, there isn't any evidence that taking in more has further benefits. So I would just make sure that she meets the recommended daily allowance. That's a phenomenal advice. And as somebody who strives to try to take a middle of the road, although my innate personality is to be an extremist when it comes to diet and many things in life, I could totally appreciate why it's very complicated for patients. Like you hear calcium equals bad, and then you want to avoid calcium. Calcium is good. And then you want to do calcium and balance is so essential. That's how our body works. Homeostasis, etc. And so anyways, I really appreciate that advice that you had for Ms. Carly Cashew. We do have another patient for you. This is our last patient of the day. He had to come late because he's a very busy man. His name is Mr. Walter Walnut. He's a 58-year-old police officer with diabetes and hyperlipidemia, and he's on a stable dose of Simvastatin 40 for the last five years. He does not smoke, and in the office today, his blood pressure is 130 over 70, triglycerides are 200, LDL 80, and HDL is 60. His younger brother recently had an MI, and so he hopes to reduce his own risk. In fact, he looks rather anxious today in clinic. And one thing that he does bring up is that he's been taking a daily fish oil supplement. He was so excited to see on the news that a study showed that an omega-3 fatty acid drug reduced cardiovascular events. Now, we did have the opportunity to touch on this as part of our lipid episode with doctors Anne-Marie Navarre and Nishan Shah when we got all greasy with lipids in episode 42, but Dr. Mikos, is there a benefit to dietary fish oil supplements? And are there differences between different fish oil preparations? What would you recommend this patient in clinic? And how do we navigate through this very complicated subject? 
So my take, of course, is that the marked reduction that we saw in major adverse cardiovascular events with icosapent ethyl in the Reduce It trial should not be extrapolated to other fish oil preparations, particularly dietary fish supplements. They're just not the same. And I understand people hearing about this and wanting to take a dietary supplement as opposed to a prescription that often needs pre-authorization, but they're just simply not the same. Dietary supplements, there was a study where they analyzed the content of them and up to 36% of the content may actually be saturated fats, the bad fats that raise LDL, as opposed to the polyunsaturated fats that we're hoping that they would take in. The amount of omega-3 fatty acid content on the label of these dietary supplements is often overstated. There was a study where they pulled 30-something supplements off the counter and the vast majority, when they actually measured in the lab, had far less omega-3 fatty acids than it said on the label. So, you know, you just don't know what you're taking. And the dietary supplements can be easily oxidized. So you have oxidized fats, which tend to be high, and they can be contaminated with, you know, pesticides and PCBs. And really, the big thing is it's really hard to achieve those kind of levels of EPA doses similar to prescription medications. You would have to take handfuls of supplements to try to get the four grams a a day of uh, EPA that we saw with icosapent ethyl. And we saw in two major trials, the ASCEND trial and the VITAL trial, that about one gram a day of a combination of EPA plus DHA failed to meet the primary endpoint. That's the kind of types of supplements that people are getting from the dietary supplements. And furthermore, I, I strongly believe the type of polyunsaturated fatty acids matter. Most of these supplements contain a combination of EPA and DHA and other oils. The REDUCE trial with icosapent ethyl, this was a highly purified form of EPA at four grams a day. And REDUCE, it wasn't a one-hit wonder. If you remember the JELUS trial, although it didn't get a lot of press because it was in Japan and was open label, but that looked at a, a slightly lower dose, 1.8 grams, but pure EPA, and did show a cardiovascular benefit, particularly among those who had elevated triglycerides. So um, I think the type of PUFA matters, and we'll find out soon at the American Heart Association, the STRENGTH trial is going to be presented. I haven't seen it yet, but there was a press release that, you know, went out earlier this year that STRENGTH was stopped due to fertility, and STRENGTH also studied a prescription fish oil, but at also four grams a day, but it was a combination of EPA and DHA. So why was strength reportedly null or futile, but reduce it had this dramatic 25% reduction? Well, again, I think maybe the DHA may have offset the benefits of the EPA in strength. We know in reduce it that there was a clear dose response relationship, again, confirming a causality that the higher the blood levels achieved of EPA was associated with further risk reduction with icosapent ethyl, so blood levels on treatment blood levels of EPA matter. And the EPA levels increased about 400% in in reduce it. So I think it's just really going to be difficult, particularly with dietary supplements, to get to that kind of level of blood level of EPA with dietary supplements. So getting back to Mr. Walnut, he's a high-risk patient. I mean, his brother, his younger brother, had a myocardial infarction, and he's 58, so his brother is younger than that. So he has a family history and a sibling, which is even greater risk than having a family history and a parent with premature coronary disease. And he has diabetes and another major risk factor. 
and he's on a statin therapy already. After lifestyle changes, if his triglycerides are still above 150, he's the perfect reduce it candidate. These were the type of patients that were enrolled in this trial. Individuals who were generally had their LDL well controlled on a statin, triglycerides remained above 150. So I would have him drop the dietary supplement and prescribe icosapent ethyl where you know the benefits are, are large and large benefits endorsed by four major guidelines now and FDA approved specifically for the purposes of cardiovascular risk reduction. I would prescribe icosapent ethyl for him. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Mikos. That was really a whirlwind journey through the world of aspirin and supplements. I really can't think of a a more perfect person to have gone over all of this. And I think after hearing all these cases and hearing your input, it really highlights one, first and foremost, the importance of taking a good history. A lot of times patients often neglect to even mention the supplements that they're taking, you know, because they're thought of as an aside. But as we learned from our discussion with you today, more is not more. And while some of these supplements may be benign or not necessarily have particular benefit, there are others like particularly calcium that can actually be detrimental. So it's really important to when taking a history and reviewing the medications with our patients, ask them about the supplements that they're taking and also be mindful of the potential benefits and also risks of those agents. So with that, I'd like to transition now to the second part of our discussion with you today, which I'm really excited about. And this is really highlighting your role as a mentor. As Dan mentioned earlier, really who better to lead the discussion than some of your many mentees. And so we have with us now Dr. Andi Shahu, Dr. Rick Ferraro, and Sarah Jang, who will be joining us for the discussion on mentorship. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad you're ha- we're having this topic about mentorship because this is a topic I feel really passionate about giving back and paying it forward. Like everybody, I've had my own career struggles. For example, I found out my third R01 submission likely won't be funded. My CV of failures is as long as my CV of successes. But this is where mentoring actually helps me personally because I can turn the focus, the attention away from me and direct it towards helping others. And I think volunteering for anything, but particularly like Mentoring gives you the opportunity to think of something and someone else other than being swallowed by your own disappointments. And so for those who follow me on social media, you know, I turn cartwheels when my mentees succeed because it is really, truly a sincere joy for me. And the honor is all mine to work with people like Rick and Andy and Sarah, seeing their passion and their drive and their new excitement for a clinical investigation is, is totally like an epi infusion boost for me. I'm very excited about mentoring and having three of my mentees here today. I can briefly introduce them because I'm so proud of them. We have Dr. Rick Ferraro, who is one of our Hopkins Osler Internal Medicine residents, third resident applying for cardiology fellowship. And he's done a lot of things. I'll just highlight what he's worked on with me. He's been interested in vascular risk factors and using data from the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. He investigated a, a cytokine called hepatocyte growth factor and looked at risk of incident heart failure, found it was associated with HEFPEF, but not HEFRE 
ref. And he got a lot of awards for this. He, he presented this at the Vas- AHA Vascular Discovery Meeting. And he was a finalist at our Hopkins Department of Medicine Research Retreat Young Investigator Award for this work. And he has continued his work in hepatocyte growth factor, looking at structural changes, 10-year change in LV mass, again, with Mesa data. And he's going to be presenting this very soon at the upcoming American Heart Association meeting here in November. And, and I also want to congratulate him. He's recently published a first author, wonderful state-of-the-art review article in Jack under the mentorship of one of my uh, colleagues, Dr. Armin Zadeh, about diagnosis and management of stable coronary artery disease. Truly a, a tour de force, a wonderful review article that everybody should read. And that's Rick. And then I equally should be very proud of Andy, Dr. Andy Shahu. He's also an internal medicine resident, his third year applying for cardiology fellowship. And he's been working on differences related to social economic status, these social determinants of health and looking at income and how that impacts patients' risks. And he looked at income and risk of heart failure and risk of HEFPEF in the MESA study. And he presented this work at our ACC meeting in this past month. March in 2020. And he also earned a travel award from the ACC Prevention Council. And again, such a disappointment that it turned to virtual and he couldn't travel to present his work, but an award is an award. And he has also presented at the same ACC meeting, looking at income and patient reported outcomes, uh, which I think are also very important using data from the medical expenditure survey. And then also at the HAQ Corps meeting this spring in 2020, he presented his work about income and utilization of cardiovascular preventative services, whether there's disparity and how well we're doing screening and accessing cardiovascular services by income level. And for that, he got an Early Career Investigator Award uh, semifinalist in oral presentation. So super proud of Andy. And then certainly not last, not least, Sarah Jang, who is a Hopkins medical student that I mentored her as part of her summer scholars program, a summer research between her first and second year of medical school. So I'm very excited because I love working with trainees very earlier in their career where we can hopefully shape their career direction and convince her to be a cardiologist when she grows up. So Sarah has done some wonderful work also in Mesa, interested in inflammation. She had a paper about Glyca, this novel inflammatory marker in risk of heart failure and its subtypes. She found it was associated with HEFPEF, but not HEFREF. And she presented this as an oral presentation at last year's American Heart Association, 2019, back when we had meetings in, in person. I was so proud. She was a second year medical student and up there at the podium giving an oral presentation. And it was her first oral presentation at a big national meeting like that. And as a you know, mentor, I was just in the audience, just beaming with pride. And she also presented this work here locally at Hopkins for the Medical Student Research Day, where she got first prize, the Denison Award. And this paper was published in Circulation Heart Failure. So a first author paper in Circ Heart Failure as a medical student. Uh, again, so proud. And she has another paper she presented also at HA about Glyca and AFib. And that paper is under review. Just really outstanding and smart early researchers. The future is very bright with these folks. 
Holy moly, Dr. Mikos, that was like so amazing. And we have this side chat going just to help coordinate the questions and flow. And just the amount of emojis with and hearts that I'm seeing right here is just amazing. And just the way you describe these amazing people brings like serious, very positive vibes and goosebumps. And really, it just shows how every single aspect and part of their accomplishments you relish and we could just totally see that love and we could see why it motivates you to keep doing what you're doing so i'm going to stop talking just hand this over to rick who's got a little take it away wow incredible introduction by dr mikos and again thank you so i can't can't say enough here i did want to ask you dr mikos we have all learned so much from you about how to approach cardiovascular prevention through this discussion and our work with you how did you initially become interested in preventative cardiology Yes. So I've I've always been really interested in lifestyle. People who know me, I'm very big on running and exercise and nutrition. So it really aligned with my interests. So I first came to Hopkins 20, over 20 years ago as also a Barker, Osler resident. And as an intern, I was expressed my interest in this area. And I was introduced to Dr. Roger Blumenthal, who directs our Chikaroni Center. And he got me started in some research projects like he has done, you know, countless trainees over the years. And it just took off from there. And this is how it's so important, the role of mentorship and sponsorship. Sometimes I wonder if I hadn't met Dr. Blumenthal 20 years ago when I was an intern, you know, would I have become a preventive cardiologist? It's amazing how certain people can shape your career and your whole career trajectory and that I'm still working with him in the tremendous Chikaroni Center more than 20 years later. So I'm passionate about preventive cardiology because it's something that we can prevent largely. It's largely a preventable disease in many ways. And that I find is a very optimistic field of medicine to be in because we can do something about it. Thank you, Dr. Mikos, for that wonderful introduction. Again, it's such a blessing to have met you as a mentor. So you have already mentioned how meeting Dr. Blumenthal as your mentor has really shaped your career And at any level of training, finding a great mentor can have a huge impact on one's career and life. But as it can sometimes be challenging for trainees to find mentors, and they might not know where to begin. Could you tell us a little bit about how you approached finding mentorship when you were a trainee? Yes. And I first want to emphasize that one doesn't have one mentor. People have a whole mentoring team because it's really hard to find one person that can be all things to you for all aspects. And so I've had a lot of really important mentors, such as Dr. Wendy Post is who got me involved in Mesa. I was involved in Mesa as a cardiology fellow. And, and now um, all three of you have a, a Mesa project. And Dr. Post's mentorship of me in Mesa has led to my direct mentorship of you in Mesa. And then I was really interested in women's health. And I met Dr. Pam Oyoung, who directed our, our women's cardiovascular health program. And then when she retired, I had the great honor of taking over as director of women's cardiovascular health. So it's important to find lots of mentors. You're going to have your content science mentors that might help you on specific projects. You'll have your career mentors that might help guide your academic and career development, such as your applications for residency or fellowship. And then there's your lifestyle mentors 
mentors and your peer mentors. There's so many different people that can help shape one aspect of your career, aspect of your life. So it's important to have a lot of people, a whole mentoring team. It's, it's hard to find one person that can do it all. So, you know, you just start when you're earlier in your career, you, you start talking to people, trusted people who know what you're interested in, have some idea of a career that you would like. And that's why role models is so important. You know, you can't be what you can't see, but just to start with talking to people and then they put you in touch with other people. And sometimes it's hard to find the right, you know, mentoring relationship. It's like any kind of relationship. You have to have the right chemistry and has to be uh, fit on both parties. But I would just start broadly and talk to a lot of people and figure out what it is that you're looking for, whether it's advice on a specific research project, or is it advice on applying for a grant or someone to help with your specific aims or someone to help guide you of how you should have a difficult conversation in terms of negotiation and being able to reach out and find the people that can help guide you in specific aspects of your career. So it involves networking, involves talking to people. And and keep in mind that we're now more than ever in this huge global environment. And mentors do not have to be limited by the bricks and mortars of your institutional walls. And some of my most trusted mentors and councils now have been people outside of my institution that I've met through the ACC or AHA, the Women in Cardiology Network community, who has provided a lot of sage advice to me and support. I call them my raft of otters. So I would encourage trainees also to, you know, attend these meetings. Hopefully we'll be back in person because I know it's harder to network virtually. But when you're at these meetings, the ACCHA, go to all the networking sessions, get involved with the fellow in training, the fit and the early career groups. And we can meet a lot of people and hopefully you'll find the people that can help shape your trajectory and get you on the right path to where you want to be. Dr. Mikos, thank you so much for offering all of this advice. Rick, Sarah, and I are so grateful to be here talking to you because you're such an incredible mentor. You're so supportive of your mentees, so responsive to new ideas and questions, so passionate about promoting your mentees' work. You go out of your way to provide new career development opportunities to your mentees, and you set an example for others by placing your mentees in diverse and inclusive teams that include women and others who are underrepresented in cardiology. What do you think makes a good mentor? How do you approach mentorship of your mentees at this stage in your career? Yes, well, it's great. Again, I think mentoring is a two-way street and in a good relationship should be beneficial for both. So while I hope my mentees have benefited from me, as I've mentioned many times, I have benefited tremendously from my mentees directly. Again, it needs to be a partnership. And I think what helps early on is setting some kind of expectations a little bit so that both parties kind of know. Like, So there's some mentoring relationships that are very casual and just it's a conversation over coffee. And then there's things like, you know, a mentor on a T32 grant or an HA SFRN grant where it's much more formalized and having an individualized development plan where there's a blueprint of both what the mentee wants to get out of the relationship, whether it be two or three publications or you know abstracts, what is the mentee's goals and what is the mentor's expectations. And so I think having that aligned, I think communication is going to 
be really important because otherwise it's going to lead to disappointments. I've had some mentees ghost on me, disappear, never finish a project and left me hanging. Fortunately, that was pretty rare. Most of the time they've just done beyond expectation. And so I think it's good to have those expectations kind of laid out. I think when meeting a mentor, a potential mentor, mentees should come prepared to that visit. Mentors are generous people. They want to help, but they're also incredibly busy people. I think you just get busier and busier as you get on in your career because you end up having more responsibilities. And so mentees also need to be respectful of their mentor's time, not give abstract or grants the night before it's due to be respectful of time. And so I think coming to your meeting, I think having standing meetings is helpful. And then coming to your meeting with some kind of agenda, whether you're going to just review this data set, these data analyses, or what you would like to accomplish in each meeting, and then following it up with a follow-up email so that each party knows that they're their next steps. And so I think like all relationships, they're good. They take a little bit of work and communication to really make them successful on both ends of the parties. Dr. Mikos, as Dan mentioned earlier, you have a remarkable following on Twitter. How have you integrated social media into your career and what do you see as its role? Yeah, I think like anything, there's pluses and minuses. So clearly there's some negatives on social media. But despite that, I think for me, the positives, the benefits that I've gained out of it is far outweighed any negatives. As I mentioned, we built this global community of networking and collaboration. You know, now I have this raft of otters, these, these groups, these people who have been able to really support me during turbulent times and keep me afloat. And so some of these things have turned into real friendships and real collaboration initially started with people I had first met through Twitter. We were following similar topics, similar groups, interests in similar fields, and we got to know each other by sharing the same studies and commenting on these studies. And then when we had the opportunity to meet in person at the ACC or AHA, uh, then that sealed the personal connection. And then actually a lot of these have turned into real collaborations where we've written papers together and published together and done research projects together that all began through an initial introduction through Twitter. And so I think that is really huge. I think it's really helpful for rapid dissemination of knowledge, education. Look how cardio nerds took off. I don't know if you would have had that widespread rapid adoption if there wasn't this era of social media. And so it's exciting to me when I share one of my trainees' papers and within an hour, someone in Australia comments on it. You know, in the old pre-Twitter days, I would write a paper, get it published and hope that somebody eventually sees it or downloads it, hopes they find it on PubMed. But now it's almost instantaneous access. And so there can be this rapid sharing, which is good. And I encourage all trainees and all faculty to get involved in social media because there's actually metrics, there's actually data from randomized clinical trials that Twitter promotion of a paper can increase citation rates that can, you know, increase citation rates for things like your H index. There was a randomized clinical trial of the European Society of Cardiology Journals and the papers that they promoted randomly on Twitter versus those that didn't get the same level of promotion. The the papers that got promoted were more likely to be cited. And there was other studies too that show that Altmetrics, which are these other metrics of news and media engagement, these non-traditional metrics are actually correlated with traditional citation counts. 
And it is important. The data is obviously that it's important. So I think that we need to get out there. I think you can share your work in a positive way. It's not necessarily self-promoting because you're, you obviously worked on the study and you're proud of your study. I mean, you worked hard on this and why shouldn't you share it? You should be proud of your work. And so I think you can share your work with joy. And I think it's easier sometimes to share other people's work than your own, which is why I know my trainees might be shy about self-promotion. So I promote it for them because I'm proud of them. And research displayed by social media is more likely to be cited. So in summary, it's the way you build networks, build friends, build collaborators. It's a generally a good thing. And no, you don't have to engage in every Twitter fight that you know you can always ignore and scroll on by. You can engage as much as little as, as you want to. And overall, I think it's a really rewarding activity. Thanks, Dr. Mikos. And I'll second that. Twitter is just a phenomenal tool, but just you want to remember that it's to accomplish certain goals. So one goal is dissemination of valuable information. And we see that all the time. And that's what we've been able to build out an amazing team. And Rick's actually one of our producers for our case report series. And one of the things that we really try to highlight to them is that as you grow and develop, you should be thinking about the brand that you're building for yourself. As you develop expertise and grow in a particular niche, niche area, or even a general area, you should take credit for the things that you've done and highlight, you know, and basically build your brand because that will provide opportunities that will become even more and more opportunities. And we were very excited when the paper came out and Jack recently with his state of the art review and that he was taking to Twitter to disseminate that and quite successfully, I will add. So Dr. Mikos, you are a wonderful role model for women in medicine, including myself. And I really admire how you gracefully balance being a mom and a physician. And I know that you're passionate about supporting and advocating for women in cardiology. So my question for you is, what advice do you have for women considering a career in cardiology? Oh, this is great. Well, obviously, I love being a cardiologist and I would choose cardiology again, although it certainly hasn't been without challenges in my career. I mentioned during my own cardiology fellowship, I was the only woman. And so this is what gets back to the importance of, you know, you can't be what we can't see and that we want to increase women who are training in our specialty because our, you know, women patients are are 50% of the population and we want to have our workforce be representative of the patients we take care of every single day. And so I think it's important to have visibility early. About half of medical students are women and and nearly half of internal medicine residents are women. But there's this drop-off where less than 20% of cardiology fellows being women and and then something like only, you know, 13% of practicing cardiologists are women. So there is this leaky pipeline that's been talked about so long, which is a shame because it's really a, a wonderful career and you really need visibility. Cardiology is very heterogeneous. Cardiology has you know, multiple specialties all within cardiology. I mean, I do preventive cardiology and echo. I mean, there's just so much diversity within cardiology. And I think sometimes people really early in their career make certain assumptions about lifestyle. And, and again, I think that we as a field need to be more welcoming and both men and women trainees and faculty would benefit from better work-life integration because 
clinicians are happier and balanced. It translates to better care for their patients. You know, there's more we can do for our specialty, but I think we're moving in the right direction. And one of the reasons I'm so happy to work with you, Sarah, when you were just a first-year medical student is because you're so early in your career. And hopefully, if we can have more visibility with women in cardiology like myself, giving lectures and talks and doing small groups with medical students, that you can see that, that there are women in cardiology, that cardiology is a good field for women and women who enjoy their career. That although there's less women in cardiology, surveys from the ACC have suggested that women in cardiology do report good satisfaction with their career choices. And so we just need to share that passion earlier when people to earlier in their careers, when they're still undecided to make our field seem more welcoming. And then I think our field needs to continue to improve and change and make perhaps some more flexibility and training and flexible work options to, again, make it more welcoming for women so that we can be representative of the patients we take care of every day in practice. Dr. Miko, something that you've reiterated already twice uh, is something that really resonates with us at the uh, Cardi Nerds team, that you can't be what you can't see. There's nothing truer than that. And one of the things that we wanted to accomplish with our case report series, where we've already recorded 44 episodes with cardiology fellowships across the country, showcasing the hearts and souls of their programs. And just take a look at these, the episode graphics for each of these episodes. And just when you put them all together, you see this beautiful mosaic of cardiology. And we want people who are thinking about cardiology or thinking about the field of cardiology to know that they belong. And there are people of all types that belong to this field, this beloved field that we all share together. You know, coming on this show, Dr. Mikos, sharing your highlights about prevention and then sharing this beautiful relationship that you have developed and cultivated with your mentors and mentees has been very powerful. And we just want to thank you so much for taking the time on this busy Sunday and being able to make it for this recording. And as a tradition for our prevention series, we have been asking our guests about what makes their heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention and what keeps them going in this great field. Oh, well, it's great. It's because we think that 80 to 90% of cardiovascular disease is actually due to preventable risk factors through primordial and primary prevention. It's largely a preventable and treatable disease for the most part. I mean, look at over the decades, we've made huge strides over decades in reduction in cardiovascular mortality since the 1970s. I mean, it's largely a success story. Fortunately, cardiovascular mortality rates are plateauing off now. We're not making the same gains as we did before. So we can't lose vigilance. But again, I think that this is a success story and that a healthy lifestyle throughout the lifespan is the best way to prevent cardiovascular disease and prevention needs to begin early. Thank you so much, Dr. Mikos. And I have to echo what Dan said about how wonderful it was listening to you, particularly the the segment on the mentorship. That really made my heart flutter and and was absolutely inspiring. And I'm so excited that we were able to get you on the show and listen to your expertise. But really, it was really inspiring to hear how you highlighted and showcased your mentees. It was really a beautiful thing. Oh, thank you. It's my, I'm so proud of, of you both, Dan and Corinne, and in the whole Cardio Nerd series. And so, you know, you all make my heart flutter. Rick, Andy, Sarah, thank you so much for joining and participating. This second segment of the show is just so valuable. So we really appreciate everything you've contributed to here. Thank you all. What an incredible discussion. Thank you all for having me. 
Yes, thank you so much for letting me participate in this wonderful discussion. Anytime talking with Dr. Mikos is such a great experience. So thank you so much. I'll second that. This was a lot, a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. It's Amit, your friendly neighborhood cardio nerd. I'm sorry I couldn't make it for the recording, but I had to just chime in because, wow, what an amazing discussion. Big thanks to Dr. Mikos for teaching us. I learned so much about the role of aspirin and supplements in cardiovascular disease. But all of this talk about mentorship really had me reflect on my own mentoring relationships. I am just so incredibly proud of Rick and Andy. I had the honor of serving as chief resident for them, as well as 10 other spectacular individuals during their intern year at Johns Hopkins. As a mentor, you know, you do your best to teach medicine, to be a good role model, and just to support your mentees in whatever ways they need. But as much as I've tried to give them, they each have given me so much more back. Mentees inspire mentors to know more, work harder, and just be better. We hope everyone is fortunate to find mentors like Dr. Aaron Mikos, and we equally wish for each of you that you have the fortune to find mentees like Rick, Andy, and Sarah. This is Amit Kara. I am President of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and Professor of Medicine, Director of Preventive Cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds Podcast. What an amazing job these folks do, and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're going to bring on these podcasts. We hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers they have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention, and we certainly want to help others learn about it too. Thank <laughs> you.